that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, as John prayed early, that pure spiritual milk of your word. We thank you for the truths of the gospel, for Christ himself our solid rock. And so we ask that you would help us to understand your word this morning, that we would indeed be built up into that dwelling place of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are many islands off the coast of Maine that are either uninhabited or have a few cabins or have very small fishing villages on them. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm using main illustrations because that's where I was. Bear with me. Um, But actually, this wasn't the case uh, over 100 years ago. Um, In the 19th century and early 20th century, some of these small islands actually had pretty robust populations. 100 people, almost more than 1,000 in some cases. And if you saw these islands, you'd be shocked. They're just little rocks in in the middle of the ocean. And you can go to some of these islands and you can see the foundations of these buildings and of these towns. uh, And you wonder what's going on. It's kind of like the Wild West, the Old West, right? You have ghost towns. It's a little bit ghostly like that. Um, But instead of mining for gold, these predecessors of ours living on the far reaches uh, off the coast of Maine were quarrying for granite. now, I don't know if you guys know much about granite, but it's pretty hard rock. You have maybe uh, countertops that are granite. But back in the day, this was the building stone. They would blast and cut perfectly shaped stones for buildings in places like Boston and New York and Washington, D.C. Um, and they would ship them down by schooner, by windjammer, down the coast to these great cities, all, all really all around the country and around the world. And they stand today, these rocks, these stones, in some very prominent places in our nation's capital. They are part of the Washington Monument, uh, the granite from Maine. Or uh, at the base, the footings of the Brooklyn Bridge in New York City. They stand there, solid. And, of course, the introduction of steel and concrete ended the era, so that by the 1920s, early 20s, 
the work was done and the towns were gone. Nevertheless, those buildings, those monuments across our country and the world, those bridges built by these great granite blocks still stand. Peter, here in this letter, picks up the imagery of stones hewn for building from the prophet Isaiah and other places and applies it first to Jesus and then to us. He is painting a picture of our status as believers that like the granite from the coast of Maine, but exponentially greater and stronger. The status we have in Christ, our cornerstone, is sure, is fixed, is immovable. But even more than being just a sure foundation, Peter describes the stones here, both Christ and us as believers, as alive. Interesting picture. Living stones. I'm sure there's movies out there where rocks come alive, you know, something out of Tolkien. But uh, it's still a weird picture. Living stones. And this morning I want us to explore what it means for us to be fixed on the rock of Christ. First. Right? And then think about ourselves. Second. As rocks. Living stones. And then finally, I want to reflect a bit on what does it mean for us to live in light of that reality? What does it mean to live in light of the fact that Christ is that solid rock, that cornerstone, that we are living stones built upon him? And then what does it mean for us to live as living stones? So first, Christ, the living stone, chosen and precious. Now, just as a heads up, you'll notice in the text that I'm going to skip over verses 1 to 3. I will... Lord willing, get back to those at the very end when we come to the application section. But just so you're aware, I'm I'm not ignoring them. They're very, very precious words, and I want to address them at the end. But I want to start in verse 4. Verse 4 says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. It's interesting that Peter picks up this imagery of stone on a couple fronts. Um, And the first, you might remember Peter. What does his name mean? Rock, stone, rock. means rock. Um, And this name was not his given name when he was born, but it was given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ when he, Peter, confessed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the Christ. We can reread this back in the Gospel of Matthew. We see Jesus' words here. Jesus answered him after Jesus, after Peter had confessed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. Gospel of John, there, he used the Aramaic, so probably Jesus said Cephas, which was Aramaic for the same word. Peter, Petros, is rock in Greek, Cephas. In the Aramaic rock. And he said, Jesus said, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the question is, and has been, scholars look at this, is to whom is the rock referring when Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church? Roman Catholics say, well, this is the establishment of the papacy. This is Peter, the first of, of the apostles and the building of the church on Peter. And, and the 
Protestants said, no, the papacy is wrong, it's evil, whatever they said. And they, they went on and they said, it's the apostolic witness. It's those that confess Christ. It is Jesus as the Christ and the Messiah that was the grounds, that declaration for the church. I think maybe there's a false dichotomy somewhere in here. I'm not going to get into the debates. But I think Peter actually gives us the answer to who is the rock. Look here in Peter. Peter says, Christ is the rock. Christ is the rock. The rock ultimately is none other than Christ himself. Firstly, preeminently, it doesn't mean that we're not rocks. It doesn't mean that Peter wasn't a rock, but it means that Christ himself was the rock. As Peter is saying this to these uh, Christians in the outer corner, outer reaches of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor, I wonder if he isn't doing a little bit of sort of... I don't know how to say it. He wasn't, maybe he was a little uncomfortable with his own name, Petros. Right? After all, was Peter rock-like when he denied the Lord three times? And throughout his period, he kind of goes through ups and downs uh, as he followed Jesus. He was often uh, rebuked and challenged by the Lord. And, and even after the Lord's resurrection and ascension, he even gets rebuked by his fellow apostle Paul. And so you kind of wonder if Peter wasn't a little uncomfortable with his name saying, I understand that my name is Rock and I understand that the Lord has given me this call to go feed the sheep of Christ and that I'm called to go out and minister the gospel and build the church and all of that. But you need to know first and foremost that Jesus is the Rock. He is the Rock, the foundation, the cornerstone. Maybe he was clearing the air, saying this. There's only one rock, one stone. We'll look at the fact that we are living stones in just a minute, but there's only one. Well, this rock or stone imagery doesn't start with Jesus and Peter upon that confession, but it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And we don't actually have time Uh, this morning to look at the entire theology of rocks in the Old Testament, but it's a great study. Go and do that. I highly encourage it. Um, You you know, we have that great song where he sing that, Here I raise my Ebenezer. And everybody's like, that's weird. It's a rock. Stone of help. That's all it means. So go back, look at the Old Testament and study all this stuff about rocks. But what is being described in this theology of stones and rocks in the Old Testament as they describe God is that God is strong. He has these characteristics. He is faithful. He is protective. He is sure. He is immovable. Uh, It makes me think of the insurance company. Which one is the rock? Is that Prudential? Is that right? Is that the big rock? It's like, why would they use rock as a symbol for their insurance company? Well, because it is strong and faithful and protective and sure and immovable. That's the image of a rock throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 18 captures much of this picture. This is just verses 1 uh, to 2. It says, 
To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies. So that's the preamble to the psalm. And he delivered him from all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, that is David, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. If you want to know what it means that God is a rock, read Psalm 18. But it's interesting. Because Peter kind of takes a little bit more. Not just that God is generally a rock and strong and mighty and powerful. But he picks up some very specific language concerning God as a rock from Isaiah chapter 28. In this chapter, Isaiah is prophesying against the proud rulers of Jerusalem who think they are immune to judgment. You know, they're like, well, God's our God. We can do what we want and how we live because we're God's special people. And uh, you can go back and read Isaiah 28. But it it is a prophecy of judgment against God's people, particularly the rulers. And in the middle of this judgment, there is this prophetic word in verse 16 of Isaiah. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. All right. So this is the quotation that we see here uh, that you have right before you in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 6. And Isaiah is painting a picture of the Messiah. Not just as a strong rock, but as a foundation stone. The first stone that is set, the one that is perfectly square, upon which they can run their lines and establish the rest of the building. This is the picture of the Messiah. And it's interesting how it's described here in Isaiah. Chosen as precious by the Father. To be the resting place both for himself, right? He's establishing himself and for his people. He's going to lay himself down as a stone so that the people of God might be built on him. This precious chosen stone. Christ is the rock through which God is able to dwell with his people and give them rest. This is what the rock does. It sets down and creates a place where we can have rest. Did you notice that language there? Uh, He, whoever believes, will not be in haste. That's interesting. That's the Hebrew word. The Greek Septuagint, which Peter quotes, says different. It says that this says he will not be put to shame. Which is it? Is it... They won't be in haste if they sit on the rock, or they won't be put to shame if they sit on the rock. I, I don't think it's that either or prospect. The rock is such a refuge that whoever believes in it, whoever rests on it, 
Whoever trusts in it doesn't need to run and hide anymore. He doesn't need to be ashamed. He doesn't need to go about running away. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They sinned against God. And what what was their first impulse? The hide. They were ashamed. They were naked. They they were afraid. They they, they had all of those pictures. And what, what Isaiah is saying is that there's a rock on which you can stand where you don't need to be afraid. You can be secure. You can be safe. You can be unashamed. Don't need to go anywhere. It's like Moses. He was... He was Wanted to see the glory of God. And and God said, you can't see me. You die. But I'll do this. I'll take you. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. And I'll pass by and let you see my glory. The backside of it anyway. Secure. Safe. Able to see the glory of God. You see, God is able through the precious chosen stone of Jesus Christ to dwell with his people, to call them his children, and there is no need for us to be afraid or to run or to hide, but we can dwell secure. Wow. I, I, don't, I don't think we, we dwell on that fact much, but you, we've read through the Old Testament enough to know that God is holy and just and righteous, and that apart from being preserved, there's no hope. Here it is, our preservation But this temple foundation stone was not the stone that the builders wanted. In fact, this stone was one that the builders rejected. Again, Peter draws from another piece of the Old Testament in Psalm 118, which we read earlier in this service, where the Messiah is once again described as the cornerstone, but the rejected cornerstone. What is that all about? Peter is describing... This particular stone, one to be a cornerstone and a foundation and the dwelling place of God with his people. But it was one that was particularly rejected. And who's rejecting it? The builders, namely the religious leaders. But also, we look forward to the New Testament. And what Peter's referring to is also not just the believers, but the Gentile leaders themselves. Pilate, Herod, others. The ones who crucified him. And even though he was crucified, he was rejected. He was the chosen, precious stone of God. And it ought not to be missed. This precious refuge, rejected stone, and stone of help, is both a refuge and strength, as well as a conquering fortress. Catch that? I think we think of God as a rock, as a refuge, and a strength, but it's more than that. It's an active, conquering force. It's it's an active stone, a living stone. And, And we see this, again, in our text. First, we see it in Isaiah. The imagery in Isaiah isn't just a place of safety and security, but it's a warning of the power and judgment of God against those who would reject him. But Peter himself was saying the same thing. He says, for it stands in Scripture. So the honor is for you who believe, but for the one who 
does not believe the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Remember Jesus' words to Peter. He said, on this rock I will build my church. What were the very next words? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell. So we think of, we think of, you know, hell sort of invading us, like coming towards us. But it's the gates of hell that, that Christ is going towards, that he is conquering, that he is crushing. So it is on the cross that he destroys hell itself and the power of hell. You know, once for all in glory when he returns. But at the cross, in his rejection, in his death, he is conquering hell itself. All the hordes of hell. Finally, Peter adds his own piece to this rock imagery. He calls this rejected cornerstone a living stone. And it's not just in the sense that the Messiah is a person and not a physical stone, though I think that's important, right? So the temple, that he's painting a picture of temple imagery here. The temple was a foreshadowing, a taste of what the true temple was to be. The, the physical temple was pointing to a spiritual reality. And so Jesus is a living stone in the sense that it's, he's not just some part of the physical temple, but he himself is alive. But I think it's more than that. Peter is saying, as he did in chapter 1, that he is alive, that he is risen from the dead, that through him, though he was rejected and crucified, through him, the rock crushed death itself and broke the power of death. Jesus is the living stone and that in him we have hope of life and life eternal. Truly the gates of hell have not, will not, cannot prevail against the living stone of Jesus Christ. Friends, is there any stone more powerful, more secure, more protective, or more precious in all the world? If you cruise the main coast, you'll see a myriad of lighthouses on granite outcroppings, standing defiantly against wind and waves, immovable. They're beautiful. You can go. You can coast Maine. You've probably seen pictures of them all over the place. Friends, these don't compare to the rock of our salvation. All the granite in all the world does not compare to Jesus. Do you rest on him? Do you put your trust in him? <laughs> Maybe you find yourself stumbling over him. Do you find yourself stumbling over him? Did you see that? That he's a rock of a fence and a stumbling block? Uh, I want to encourage you, if you find yourself offended by the idea that you need this rock, friend, I'm glad that you have stubbed your toe. That's God's mercy to you. That is God's mercy because now you are falling on that rock and seeing it, coming to know its power and strength. Don't reject it. Trust in it. 
And here's the wonder. As we rest on the rock, we too are called living stones. And this is, I want to dwell on this for just a minute. As you come to him, to him, you yourselves like living stones. That's what the text says. As you come to him, you yourselves like living stones. What does it mean to be a living stone? Well, I think firstly it means you're part of something greater, a bigger structure. You're not off on your own. And I think it's our impulse, particularly as Westerners, to think of our relationship with God in very individualistic terms. It's me and Jesus. Um, I don't need the church. Religion is bad. Spirituality is good. This is, this is just a sort of a constant drumbeat in our society. And, you know, it's the American heritage, the pursuit of individual freedom, life, liberty, happiness. You know, seed of all knowledge and power and virtue is situated in the individual. We define for ourselves, for me. You can't say to me anything. And this is so embedded culturally. Even our laws, and as much as they are corporate, they protect those core values, don't they, of individualism. Yet throughout Scripture, faith is not seen simply or only as individualistic or as an individual responsibility. We are responsible before God individually. Yet, invariably, Scripture speaks of our relationships corporately. And this picture here that Peter is drawing is one of a building being blocked together. And we see elsewhere in Scripture, what is the church called? The flock of God, the people of God, the church of God, the the building of God, the body of Christ. All these pictures are corporate in nature. Corporate. Even that word corporate. Corporal. Body. Like We're meant to function together. And here Peter's no different. He's saying these living stones are built together on the living stone. And we're being built up into a spiritual house. In other words, we are interlocked and integrated into one another and into God himself. Yes, each of us is a temple of the living God. Yes, the Spirit dwells in you personally. But we together are the temple of the living God. What does that mean for us? It means first and foremost that together we enjoy the love and unity and fellowship of God and of one another. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, you, speaking to those those poor Christians on the outskirts of society, saying, but you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here, Peter is drawing again from the Old Testament He's drawing from Exodus 19 when God had brought the people of Israel out of slavery and bondage and he had brought them to Mount Sinai. He said, I bore you on eagles' wings. You are my treasured possession. And he made a covenant with them and he called them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's saying to these poor Christians in Asia Minor, God chose you. Why did he choose you? Well, it wasn't because of anything in you, just as it wasn't anything in Israel. They were a stiff-necked people. Why did God choose us? 
He loved you because He loved you. Christ loves you because He loves you, not because you are lovely. Peter Peter says here, once you were not a people, once you had not received mercy. In fact, you were counted among the builders. That's really the picture. You were the ones who were rejecting the stone. You were in utter darkness. You were unlovely. You were unloving. You were a sinner by birth, and you multiplied your sin as you lived. Doesn't that describe all of us? Thought and word and deed. And you were liable to that judgment rock. That rock of offense. The one that was crushing the the gates of hell. We were included in his purview as enemies. But scripture says, while we were yet enemies, he did what? He loved us. That love is hidden in the divine mystery of God. And it's humbling, isn't it? It's like an overwhelming flood. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. That's like an overwhelming flood. Why does God love me? Well, He loves me because of Jesus. That's it. And so now... Now we enjoy, as the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, we enjoy the presence of God, intimacy with God, union with God, fellowship with God, and with one another. Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in the Gospel of John that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. Friends, what does that mean? That means that there is no believer... Whether here, some other church, some other place, there is no believer anywhere in the world, no matter how difficult they are, with whom you will not, let me get my knots right, you are going to enjoy eternal fellowship with them. That's a hard truth, isn't it? Because there are believers out there that we just struggle to get along with in this world. I know how painful some of these relationships can be. And it's, it's funny. I think that the pain of relationships when there's brokenness between Christians is f- far more painful than the challenge of relationships with those in the world. And I think this is so because... The pain isn't supposed to be there. It's not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to be one, just as God is one. And yet we struggle with those relationships and and we grieve over them. But you are knit together for eternity. So what does that mean for life? It means you ought not to sin against one another, right? You ought not to be envious of each other. You ought not to have malice towards each other. You ought not to slander one another. This is all the stuff he said at the very beginning in these first few verses. And this brings me to my final thought and conclusion. The reality is, we are living stones. And we are alive because Jesus is alive. And we rest on him. And we have a living hope 
in Jesus Christ who is raised from the dead. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That is the gospel. We are alive because Jesus is alive. And we look forward to eternal life. But God has made us alive today. For a purpose. Today. And we see it in our text. First in the negative, he says in verse 3, Put away all malice. Put away deceit. Put away hypocrisy. Put away envy. Put away all slander. It's interesting, this group. I mean, we have different groups of sins throughout Scripture, and they often take on different sins and kind of lump them together. This stuff that's portrayed here is the stuff of pride. These sins. It's the stuff of the builders who rejected the cornerstone, who thought that they could build a temple to God without God. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander are all the sins that destroy fellowship. They're built on pride. And it destroys fellowship, firstly, with God, and then with one another. And it is the disobedience of the ungodly, and it's their ruin. That's what it says here. In our text, they disobeyed God. It was their ruin. So what are we to do? It says, put it away. It's what it says. The text says, put away all of that. Just be done with it. Put it away. Put it off. Put it to death. It has no place in the household of God. God. Rather, positively... As living stones, you are called to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. What does that mean? He says later, he says that we're called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. In other words, we are to act as a holy priesthood together. What does that mean? We have access to the Father. That's what priests had. They, they had access to God. And as a priesthood of believers, we come to the heavenly throne and we offer up our praise and our glory to God alone. What does it look like? I think it looks like being merciful and gracious. It looks like being slow to anger. It looks like abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It means living now as those who will one day see Christ face to face, pure and holy. And here's the painful reality. We all fail, don't we? I fail daily to put away these things. And so it comes back to the rock. It says, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Friends, you are precious and holy and loved You have received mercy. You are alive. And you are fit snugly and securely on that cornerstone from which you can never be moved. Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Have you ever seen a baby nursing? They, all they know is that they want it. And they're going to go after it. 
And they love it. And they sit snugly and securely in the arms of their mother and they feed and they grow and they're nourished. And this is the picture of us. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Knowing the love with which he has loved you, not based on anything you've done, but upon his great work, the stone that was rejected. Rest in Let's pray. Heavenly Father.